Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. In this season, we're going to explore how we can become better as a species at facing challenges and solving problems, especially during unpredictable situations. We're going to do that by exploring the machinery of our body and the biomechanics of resilience, adaptability, and social intelligence. We'll look at our power to control and modify how we use our hands, voices, bodies, breath, and the intelligent systems of our cells, bones, and muscles to unlock our potential as a cooperative and brilliant species. Thanks for joining. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 8. In this episode, I'll be presenting my interview with Kelly Harris of Warrior's Heart, which is a treatment facility for veterans and does a lot of complex and amazing work, which we will go into in the interview. Before that, I want to just present a couple of ideas that have parallels with the interview. The first is about something called distracting injuries, which parallels with a concept Kelly brings up called presenting problems. This is something that came up in some training that I have been doing recently. Some of you may know that I'm training to become a wilderness first responder and finished part of the training and will be doing a bit more in March. But something that came up during some of the scenarios was something called distracting injuries which is a situation where someone has gone through some kind of injury or trauma, accident, catastrophe of some sort, and there is something that is very obvious and painful to them in that situation. But there are also risks of life-threatening injuries that may be less visible to the person, less obvious. And it's important for us as first responders to make sure that we are checking for all of all of those things. And so we may need to do what we can to help regulate a person and regulate ourselves to not get so distracted by the really obvious injuries such as like um, some kind of open fracture, open wound, in order to continue to make sure that we are addressing stuff that is a lot more important to get to right away such as internal bleeding or catastrophic bleeding, those kinds of things. So what's interesting about that as a parallel to the conversation with Kelly, she talked about presenting problems, that a lot of the people that come into the treatment center have things going on in their life that feel very urgent and immediate to fix, basically, to address. But what trauma therapists understand and what they understand at warrior's heart is that there are often deeper roots and deeper things that need to be addressed in order for there to be a chance that 
if a person does attend to whatever that situation is in their life right now, that they have, first of all, a larger toolbox to continue to address that issue and also get to more of the core beliefs, as she calls it, in order to make sure that other kinds of situations don't keep recurring in that sense. And what we also covered in the interview and is a parallel with so many of things that are going on in her life is that sometimes it is very much about the situation that's going on that really draws our attention, but it's actually our response to that situation that is really causing the challenges in our life. So there can be something going on, but if we don't address how we approach that issue, how we are responding to it, that mechanism of our response, which is tied to, and we'll get to it in the interview, but is tied to all the different kinds of internal working models, algorithms, or you could call core beliefs we have. If we don't address that approach that our internal working models takes towards problems, then we have less of a chance that we're going to be able to continue to respond to events in ways that really do help us improve the situation and resolve in that sense. So what we have to understand about this mechanism in in humans, in human nature, is that survival mechanisms and systems and those kinds of threat detection algorithms are the highest priority for our system. Because if we can't solve whatever appears to be life-threatening, then there's no point in solving anything else. So those survival mechanisms are about now and not about later and not about long-term. And they're not about complexity because complexity takes too long for us to figure out all the different threads that feed into something. So when we are in a that type of survival mode, and that will come up in many different ways in humans because we are not necessarily faced with actual tissue damage, life-threatening kinds of situations, we are faced oftentimes with what we would perceive more as social survival. And that can include not just relationships, so the challenges we face in relationships and not being able to attain a sense of safety or understanding or co-regulation within our relationships, but also our status. That can include how we are able to extract resources from the external environment. So that can be things about our job, our career, the kinds of influences we have in the world. Those are all social survival kinds of threats. When it comes to the architecture of our nervous system and how it perceives things, it hasn't necessarily separated life-threatening danger from social survival kind of danger. Because, first of all, there are evolutionary ties to how important social survival kinds of skills are. So there's that aspect that we have to understand about our system. And I've mentioned this in many episodes before, that also our our first experiences as human beings, as mammals, social survival is life or death threatening. It is a matter of life or death. 
whether we are ignored or attuned to or neglected or threatened or whatever that is when we are little. So our biology and all the internal working models that get created starting from the moment of birth, because it's all data that's coming into our system and the networks are being created according to what we're exposed to, how we deal with it, how it is dealt with by others around us. All of that is creating these kinds of statistical probabilities and algorithms for us to continue to use throughout our life. And so those networks are always going to fire in a sense. And there's always this, it's not necessarily a conscious memory, but it's these internal working models, these networks that are statistics-based and probability-based that are going on within us at all times. And so we can't eliminate the idea that although social survival as we get older is less life-threatening, there's a biology to it. But as we get older and as our brains develop, we do have the capacity to use more complex and later evolved kinds of features of our brain that can help us think a little bit more in terms of possible other options possible other explanations and choice points and how to look into more of the future and long-term rather than only the immediate. So we do need to remember that children don't have as much access to that. That's something that grows as we get older. However, as we enter any kind of challenging situation, if we haven't learned about how to do this, how to use our mind in new ways, if we haven't learned how to have multiple kinds of options for regulating our internal system and to use more of a cognitive-based way of exploring various options, when we've assessed that something is not definitely physically life-threatening, if we haven't learned how to do that, if we haven't been taught how to do that or modeled how to do that on, an, on that unconscious implicit level by people around us, then social survival scenarios that include all those different categories of life, including career and family and relationships, those will activate our system in ways that make it very hard for us to see long-term to see other threads that are tying into it, to look at patterns that have gone over repeatedly over time. We are stuck kind of in a mode of deal with this now, which is what our survival system does, deal with it now. And to do that, our system looks for cause effect in our immediate environment, because that is a system that is thinking about only now and immediacy in terms of time and location. When there is a challenge that goes on in our life, that might be more on that social level, which it often is for us. Our system is looking for what is immediately around us as the source of the threat. And that's where a lot of issues come up for a lot of people because they may not be looking at the fact that whatever, however they are feeling and however they are responding to what feels like a really big issue in their life, they may not have the tools or the awareness to know to look for deeper patterns and those internal working models that they may have that are playing into this response. 
that's what I want to get into now before the interview, is that internal working model that influences a person's response to an event has a lot to do with their perceived ability to cope. And that perceived ability to cope means that the person has had, if it's very low, there's a sense of helplessness. It's a lack of adequacy and agency. It's a lack of history that they have or that they're aware of, of how they have dealt with problems in the past and have survived it. So a very low perceived ability to cope creates this sensation that they will not be able to handle whatever happens next. They won't be able to handle that person not doing what they want. They won't be able to handle whatever those the next points in time are going to be. And so that can create different kinds of responses. There may be still a sympathetic response there where there's still a little bit of agency and the person gets mobilized to try to control the situation a little bit more. But again, if it's in that very highly anxious state, it means that it's a bit more of that survival system mode, which means that they may still be lacking awareness and lacking the ability to expand their awareness to see lots of different systems that are involved. Because again, it's about that immediacy. So they may get very angry and blaming towards one particular person. And that anger may just flow onto whatever is immediate right now. So it's about stubbing your toe right now. It's about spilling the coffee right now. And the anger gets associated with that. That mobilizing sympathetic system mode is associated with that. And as you can see, there's a lot of different things that may have happened before all of that that are all feeding into the scenario. So the spilling of coffee can be from being distracted. And why was someone distracted? They were maybe in their mind about something. They were replaying something that happened yesterday or thinking about the future. Or there's so many different nodes that are coming in. They may be low blood sugar. They didn't sleep well. But in that moment, when we go into that heightened threat detection mode of what the issue is, we lack that open awareness of looking at lots of other systems. The other thing that can happen with low ability to cope, so when the perceived ability to cope is very low, is the other kind of system, a different type of parasympathetic mode, which is helplessness and more of an immobilization. So that is not doing anything about it and zoning out or using more of a disengagement kind of strategy to not deal with issues. So our perceived ability to cope is a very key factor in our response to situations. The way to increase our ability to cope is to increase our repertoire of strategies. And how we do that is by putting ourselves into different situations that allow us to cope with it and then continue to build an awareness and recognition of our ability to survive whatever that is. 
there are a lot of different ways that we can do that in our life and different systems we can test. And one of them would be physical to put ourselves in challenging, physically challenging situations, whether that's from more of a fitness kind of perspective or going outdoors and challenging ourselves with different kind of skills. The key is you're moving your body in some way that exerts your mind and your physicality in a sense in an intentional way, obviously in a safe way, a controlled way, so that your system can experience the feeling of really not liking and feeling almost like it can't do it anymore, and then riding that out and, and getting to the other side, so that you start to build up this internal working model that you do survive that sensation, those physiological sensations in your body. And then another one would be on that social level, and that's where you can do things where you put yourself out there in order to experience the feeling of potential rejection, criticism, and actually receive the criticism, receive some kind of feedback, and then survive it. All of that continues to build algorithms within you that you are able, you, have a, you do have the ability to cope. So it increases that perception in you. There's a lot of people that um, I have known in the past who have done stand-up comedy as a way to really put themselves out there for that social rejection piece. So that would be another thing. Or whatever it is that you express and you allow for whatever the reaction is to happen and let yourself go through that, the before and after, so that you're not constantly anticipating whatever a person's reaction might be as something you will not be able to survive. So you're training your system to constantly put yourself into those kinds of situations. That's just a bit about this idea of survival and how it goes into that immediacy and that that can be very distracting to us because it's not allowing us to look at the different threads that are actually playing into our responses to events. And it's those responses to the challenges that really change the future trajectory of what happens next. And a lot of those responses are influenced by our internal working models, which do have to do with our past. And I go into that a lot in a lot of different episodes about all the different ways that we can be influenced by our first you know, experiences as children in terms of that. That's for another time to continue to talk about. I just wanted to go into, in this episode, how we can do some things to increase our perceived ability to cope in a lot of situations. And one other aspect of that I want to bring in as well that is so important to Warrior's Heart and the healing that goes on is also who we can surround ourselves with as we experience new things and learn and try to gain and increase our perceived ability to cope. Because we may not have been able to choose our past experiences and what we had, but we can try now to put ourselves in social situations where, yes, we can make ourselves vulnerable and, and test those limits, but we also need to have 
those safe spaces, those harbors that we can rest in in order to regulate our system, not exert a huge amount of effort in trying to impress somebody or create that sense of safety. So we also need to have within this giant web of how we regulate our system and optimize our system, we need to have key people that are very responsive and attuned and the more abstract word would be psychologically safe. We need to have those kinds of connections in our life. And we don't need a lot of them, but we need them to be extremely high quality. So having high quality, and what I mean by high quality is highly attuned, responsive, safe kinds of connections are what allow us to have the most accurate feedback of ourselves and allow us to really use a lot of different kinds of systems that don't necessarily have to get involved in vigilance and self-defensiveness and protection mechanisms. Because remember, again, those are always about that immediacy and that survival kind of mindset. So we also have to have people in our lives that you could say get us, that really understand us. And one way that happens is there is a sense of attunement. And what I mean by that is they are not already trying to predict what you're going to do or control or manipulate you in any way. As soon as there is a sense of someone trying to extract something from us or control or manipulate in any way, whether it's emotionally through guilt trips or negativity or condemnation or judgment or criticism, that will put our social survival system on that defensive. So we need to have, and it doesn't mean that one relationship always offers that. We have to have rupture and repair and ups and downs in all of our relationships. But we need to have high quality moments with high quality connections in order to allow for some of those guards to come down and for that biological intertwinement we have with others to regulate our nervous system. That is the other piece that really comes out in Worry's Heart as well, is the importance of being around people who really allow for the veterans to tell their story without judgment, without any sense that they have to monitor what they're saying, and around people who understand their experiences and potentially their worldview. So it's important for us to to have that in our life of feeling truly understood by another person. And it is very much about the quality of that and not the quantity and the quality of the time that's spent together, which doesn't have to be also long durations. But if we can really get to that place where your nervous system is co-regulating with another nervous system, that is an extremely important part of building into your internal working model that it's possible to have that. And so that continues to also give you neurochemical rewards, but also that logic model that you are capable of having those kinds of moments, which gives more information for you as to how to continue to have quality kinds of relationships and connections in your life. And that to me is is the key to all of our mental health, and I would even say physical health issues, are those quality connections. So that is my intro piece, and I really hope you enjoy my interview with Kelly Harris of Warrior's Heart. 
Thanks for joining. Thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's really an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's dive right in. I would love to hear about your journey so far and how you got to Worries Heart. Well, my name is Kelly Harris. I'm a licensed professional counselor in the state of Texas. And um, my journey as a counselor started a long time ago. But as a student uh, over 10 years ago, I remember asking myself, if I wanted to do counseling, what is the the craziest, what is the most uh, adventurous way of doing counseling? And, and who can I help that might be the hardest and the toughest population? And so that ended me up working in psych hospitals and ERs. And I learned how to triage quickly. I did acute admissions and I actually saw over 15,000 individuals. The beauty of that is you get to really see substances. You get to see psychosis. And the hospital was a beautiful hospital because it had units that had active duty military. So they were coming in uniform, sent by their commands to be in the hospital. I would notice that it really would help them if they had someone right at the beginning because they're coming in in uniform and they're basically saying, hey, we got to take your shoelaces. Mm. And it was just an incredible like defeat. You just saw their faces. They just felt like, you know, they weren't valued. They weren't wanted. And my heart just went out for them. And I started working on those military units as one Mm. of the counselors. So I did groups for them. I would go down. So it wasn't just admitting them anymore. It was actually being with them. And I found that love for the military population. At the same time, my background is family military. I actually have all five branches in my family. So a bit of a crazy fun family, right? So so working with active duty and veterans really helped kind of serve my mission and purpose. So that opened up to finding Warrior's Heart, which is a facility right outside of San Antonio. And imagine a beautiful ranch in Texas, right, where it's always warm. People are wearing flip-flops, right? Um, There's 543 acres of an amazing place for people to come and get treatment. It wasn't a sterile hospital anymore. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to take off their shoelaces. So it was the most optimal place for me to be a clinician and a therapist and say, hey, here's a place where I could actually do therapy and I could take them fishing at the same time. So that led me to Warrior's Heart four and a half years ago. Warrior's Heart is a treatment facility that actually does treatment for the warrior class is what they say. So that's active duty military, that's veterans, and that's first responders. So that could be military, police, firefighters, could be DOD, Department of Defense, right? And so that warrior class, these are individuals, men and women, that have basically taken an oath that has stood up for us and said, I'm going to protect them. I'm going to be a warrior. I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to be a servant. These are our protectors. The beautiful thing about Warrior's Heart is they're coming here when they need help. And so on their darkest days, 
these amazing warriors and protectors are saying, hey, I need some help. And they're raising their hand. They're picking up the phone. That's what mm-hmm. we say. So yeah. to me, they are one of the toughest populations because they are our leaders. They are in tuned with interrogation, right? They are instructors themselves. And yeah. to switch roles and be a student is really hard when they know that they need help. Mm. So we only serve the warrior class because they need to be with each other. Right? Mm-hmm. And they need to, to learn from each other and see each other in those roles and say, okay, I can relate to him. I can relate to him versus what you'll hear people say is I can't relate to anybody. Mm-hmm. So heart treats for substance abuse, but it also does dual diagnosis. So in the counseling field, that's usually like, what's the secondary diagnosis to our chemical dependency licensing? So for myself as a trauma therapist, the big diagnoses that we're seeing coming in the door or that I'm diagnosing warriors with are PTSD, it's probably number one, uh, major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. Those are typically the big three. And sometimes people have those dual diagnoses and sometimes we're diagnosing after we're with them to kind of see what is presenting what's been going on. Mm. There's so there's so much to uh, everything you've already talked about. Something that struck me right away was you saying how important it was for them to have somebody there with them from the beginning. And that almost makes me emotional to, to hear because I think that we just don't understand the depths of how profound and important it is for someone to have someone there with them. We are, you know, that that's a, a huge aspect of my content and it's partly why, you know, I wanted to bring you on as well as I like to say we're mammals, <laughs> we're mammals. And so we are intertwined biologically with each other and our nervous systems regulate with each other. There is no getting around that. And isolation, I think, is one of the, the most painful and injury causing on an emotional and psychic and spiritual level that we can encounter. So um, I loved hearing that. And I I feel like a lot of the threads from that, that led you to Warrior's Heart as well, tie into all that. The, The other thing that struck me was you talking about it really, it's this identity and purpose that feels like it's going to go away um, because the people that are are serving in these roles have that heart to them, that heart to them that says, I will put myself in harm's way for other people. Like that's how big and deep that that is. And then to have something happen where they feel like they can't serve that purpose, I, I would imagine is just crushing. On your website, um, I heard you say root causes, core beliefs, core issues. I'd really love to hear more about your wisdom and insights about, you know, we have these diagnoses, but what are the, the real, what's, what's at the core of so much of what they're dealing with as, as you see it? Great question. 
from when they come in the door here, really it's a phone call first and they are not left alone. They are with admissions advocates from the very beginning. And once they get in the door, they've got the intake staff and then clinical and medical are right there. So that's the first part is definitely them feeling like they're not alone anymore. And then once we see them in those first couple of days, we say, okay, we're giving them a treatment plan. We're working with them on goals. And typically, Stephanie, a lot of times, you know, people are coming in and they're not healthy. They are not at their best. Mm. And many times these, these men and women think that they need to work on certain things. And we call those presenting problems. So a lot of times those can be mosquito bites. I need to fix the relationship, right? Um, I lost my job. Um, unfortunately, I got a DUI, right? You know, I have a legal issue. And what I will tell them in trauma therapy is, yes, I get it. We have to fix that at some point, but that's presenting. And so even if we fix that presenting problem, guess what? All of a sudden, your car can break down and we've got another presenting problem. And so what we say is we need to go to root cause. And usually that's where they'll say, oh, okay, yes, that's what I want. And I'll <laughs> say, do you want to hit the foundation? Yes, Kelly. Okay, yeah. I want to know why, not what, why. Yeah. And they're like in, they're locked yeah. on with me. And so one of the first assignments and the first talks that we have as clinicians is something called core beliefs. Mm. And so typically they're like, okay, yeah, that sounds great, right? but I'm angry, Kelly, help me with anger, help me with my relationship. Hmm. So the way I'll explain it to him and it's, I'll say, okay, let's just pretend you have a relationship issue and you got really mad that you punched the drywall in your house. Let's just pretend. And usually they start nodding their head. Like, do you have a camera in my house? <laughs> <laughs> and so I'll say, usually it stops. It starts with the surface as actions. And we're trying to fix those actions. We want to repair the drywall and the relationship. Then we start going deeper and we say, well, what's the emotion? Okay, I was anger. Yeah, I, irritable, right? There's probably some sadness we're covering up. And then usually fear is in there hiding somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the emotions are digging down. And then I will say, well, what's below the emotions? That's what you believed. And mm -hmm. that's where we get them to. What did you internally, not externally, believe about you? And typically we'll have a list for them of I statements, because it's usually easier. They'll say like, oh, well, she did it or he did it. We'll say, but what do you believe about you? And that's where you're going to hear those statements of, well, I am defective, right? I can't trust anybody. Um, I'm, I'm feeling weak. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable. I can't control anything anymore. And so I'll say that is the root cause to the emotions go back up to the actions, mm -hmm. right? And so if we don't ever find the target, how do we know what we're trying to eradicate and right. destroy? Yeah. The target is what you believe. And so we're trying to hone in on their negative beliefs. Yeah. We don't want to change the positives, but we want to see what's negative about them because typically um, if someone, if you're introducing yourself, you're not going to say, Hey, I'm Kelly. I'm weak. Nice to meet you. Right. right? I'm defective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? We're not going to do, we're not going to out ourselves. And this warrior class would never say that. Right. Mm -hmm. Unless they get to a severity of their symptoms and guess what? They're doing that when they're here mm -hmm. and we actually help to draw it out. 
we call it induce it out. What are your negative beliefs? And not only what are they, but how old are they? Yeah. We're getting even deeper into root cause because what we know is our body stores trauma, right? And so a negative belief, maybe when we were in third grade and had to uh, go for tutoring and didn't pass that grade or got bullied, guess what? That core belief of feeling I am weak has now come up again in adulthood. Yeah. And so there's, there's threads to this. That just, it makes my heart so happy to, to hear you talk about that. So I would love to dig a little more into that as well. The idea that these beliefs that we have as adults, oftentimes it's not the first time. It's not, it doesn't have its roots there. Is there anything you can speak to in terms of how you get to that place with them for uncovering the the depths of it? And then also what you see is maybe even like a aha moments that you you've noticed in people when they recognize that yes great typically nine times out of ten these professionals are super smart but what we know is subconscious right what lives under the iceberg is more than actually what we use right they say the 90 10 rule so a lot of times they will say well my trauma is my combat or my trauma is the abuse. And, and they may be right on the money. They may know. But it takes a professional to say, okay, I hear you. But is there anything else? So humor me, right? Tell me about elementary school. Tell me about mm-hmm. high school. Mm-hmm. And you'll start picking up on, oh, they were bullied. Oh, their parents divorced. And they felt inadequate, right? And so then we will start probing. And, and I'll always say, Even if our trauma is adulthood, like a combat for military, we still need to go find and see when the origin is. And so I'm always trying to get them to a number and age of Mm -hmm. what was the first time ever that you felt weak. Mm. What's interesting, Stephanie, is it's minor many times. So it's, it usually comes down to a bully or a teacher that told them, or I hate to say it, getting picked last on the team, right? And they say, well, I didn't come into treatment because I got picked last or I didn't make the baseball team. I know you didn't. However, root cause of what you believe, you're going to capture that as a little child. When your brain is not fully developed, you're going to keep it as kind of this fixated black and white, what you believe. And unfortunately, we repeat what we don't repair. We're going to repeat that belief throughout our lives. Yes. So profound what you're saying. I mean, just aligns with everything that from my experience, also working in a neuropsychology clinic for emerging adults, uh, we went deep. It was neuropsychoanalysis, but lots of other stuff. And it's just so powerful for people to hear this. And I I really want to hone in on this message of, so a couple of things. One is what we understand from trauma is, yes, an event can, you know, do a lot to us physiologically, psychologically, 
but it has more to do with the response and that response has those those origins and from the from a neuroscience perspective the reason why i think it's so important and i love that question when did you first feel weak like that's mm-hmm. wow uh, that could just change the game for so many people if that was really brought into more therapy and things like that the first time we feel weak there's something so important for us to understand about that from that neurological level because one there's that brain development aspect and also because of how we develop as these complex creatures the number of years that we are completely biologically dependent on what i call prefrontal cortex models so more mature brains that have had time. And when we talk about time and all that, we're talking about algorithms. We're talking about the brain collecting lots and lots and lots of data to get better at solving problems and understanding that there could be more than one thing that's here. But when we're little, we don't have a lot of that data. We don't have a lot of other people's reactions to us and responses because we're still in these smaller circles. So our brain hasn't collected a lot of data. It doesn't have a very complex way of understanding cause effect. Mm -hmm. So generally, like the smaller we are, the less data we have, the more likely we think we are the cause because there just isn't enough other perspective. And so it creates these kind of what you call algorithms or problem solving mechanisms in our brain of I must be the cause. And then the other thing that's very embedded in us from those young years is that because our the that prefrontal cortex, which has a lot to do with our ability to regulate our emotions, to calm us down when we need to, or stimulate us when we need to get out of bed, all of that, because it's not really developed, we it, the the younger we are, the more life threatening it is to have social rejection mm-hmm. from any from anybody. So it it weighs on our system, like our system stores that so deeply. So like what you're saying, it can be this mind, we think it's so minor, but for that little being, it's not minor in that moment because any kind of rejection has the equivalency of, of feeling like death because that that's it. They don't have anything else. They don't have the ability to regulate themselves. So I love that you go there with them. Do you find that? when they have some of those recollections, I guess you could say, what, what do you feel shifts for them? So once we target the age and we get to that, you know, when was the very first time, even if it was minor, then I ask the question, which is key, who else was involved? Because a big part of this is the word responsibility. Exactly what you said. As little ones, we will take on responsibility. And so a lot of times that's where you hear mom, dad, caretaker, bully, sibling, right? Yeah. People that were around them. But then we just, so we get them thinking, who else, right? Mm. And then the the follow-up question is, so after this happened, you were bullied in third grade. What did you do next? And that gets them to the reaction. Remember, Mm -hmm. as an adult, we punch the drywall when we get upset, right? 
What was the reaction as a kid? And typically they'll say one of three things. They'll say something about people. There were people around them that made them feel better or they started bullying people, right? Mm. So we'll introduce law of attraction, right? Mm. Because we will attract people around us to help us, good core beliefs. If we have a negative core belief, we may use people to make mm-hmm. us feel better. Mm. And then we'll say, so did you use people? Sometimes people will, uh, or sometimes we'll say, did you project? Did you assume that people didn't like you anymore? Right. Did we start saying, I know what they're thinking, right? Those, those assumptions, those are distorted thinking patterns, right? So we can draw out different distorted thinking patterns and at warrior's heart, we show them 18 different distortions and Mm. names for them. And we say, which one are you? Which one of the 18, right? Are you catastrophic thinker? Are you a filter? Are you um, black and white? Right. Yeah. So the third is how did you react as a kid, right? The actions. And they'll say, well, I started going to another classroom or I didn't go to school anymore. Or sometimes, unfortunately, you'll hear um, I went home and I found my parents' liquor bottle, right? Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about how they manifested how they started maneuvering, right? The actions. And so then we can start really honing in on patterns of behavior, right? Mm -hmm. Just with that one core belief, we've identified Mm -hmm. the what, we've identified the who and the when, and now we're looking at patterns, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're doing a lot of digging around that, you know, eight-year-old little person looking at all these different things for them. I love that you bring up patterns because I think also when something happens from from that young age, we do tend to just repeat, like you were saying, we repeat until we can repair that. And we also just repeat things because we're energy conserving systems. And so we're not experimenting all the time. It's just this, you know, whatever this reaction is. What I love what you're doing is you're taking subconscious, these stored memories, these stored response patterns that they never necessarily they didn't necessarily branch away from so if if they feel that core that whatever that sense of rejection or the word that you said that I thought was really powerful is inadequacy inadequate to figure this out like I don't know another way to do this so I will do it this way so because they because that's stored and that's so subconscious meaning also they don't have necessarily like verbal awareness of it. It's a sensation in their body and all, all their body can do is just act out what it's already acted out. It's like a motor, a motor memory. So because they don't have that verbal aspect to it, it's like it can't release in a new way. So I love that you, that it sounds like even just having these categories is so powerful because now you're linking, you're linking that sensation with, oh, there's, there's something behind this. There's a verbal, a verbal way to think about this. And I think that is part of what helps them look at patterns because now you can recognize better because it's not, um, there's this word. So some of the work that I've done is with alexithymia where people cannot figure out how to express their feelings and they can't verbalize them very well. It's a really, really big part is the verbalizing. And so it's called undifferentiated arousal. It's just this, I just feel bad and I can't differentiate. I don't know. Is it a little bit of this? Is a little bit of this? 
So what you're doing is with these categories is you're also helping them differentiate mm-hmm. this, whatever this bad feeling is. And that is what helps people then figure out the next move yep. too. So I love that. Um, yeah. And the next, the next move is we'll always say as minimal as it sounds, what's a positive core belief? What's the 180 to it? And usually they'll be like, I am strong. And you're like, exactly. And then I'll say, do you believe that? And they'll say, well, it depends on which event we're talking about. And there you go. Now you have more targets because now they start thinking of adult and recent. Do I actually believe that I am strong or I am worthy? Yeah. Yeah. And I also imagine that. So some of the other therapy that I experienced in the clinic was taking a look at the when there's that very negative event and that negative reaction to the event, it actually can also reveal a very beautiful value they hold that um, helps them figure out what really matters to them and how they can kind of demonstrate it now in their own life. So I imagine that 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 might come up as well. We call that the light bulb moment Mm. (laughs) when they can see a different perspective of it. So, so if I'm working with military, I may say, you may have a perspective from the trenches, boots on the ground, right? You were right there. What if we could find a perspective of you looking at this event from your past, from the ridgeline way up here, right? Mm. Wouldn't you like to have a different perspective of that trauma? And people are usually like, oh, well, of course I will. I don't know how to do that. And a lot of that is what we're talking about. If we can pull things apart look at when they're not emotional, right? And talk about this. This is the, the frontal lobe, right? The, the logic and reasoning. If we can talk about a trauma without them falling apart and feeling it, then we can start to get work on a perspective of something. So a lot of times I'll say, we're trying to take that emotional charge out of the event that you've wanted to avoid. And can we look at it in a safe place and actually get a new perspective and reframe because yeah. we're trying to reframe this memory. Yeah. yeah. And decouple it in a sense. Because yes. whatever whatever happened back then, they didn't have the resources they have now. But now they do. So if you can, yeah, bring it up, you can kind of decouple it that way and rewire it in a new way. The idea of purpose and identity, how does that come up for for you and, and the warriors you treat? And how do they get in maybe, I guess, in touch with that? I don't know if they lose it, lose that sense for a while. How do they recover with that? Definitely. I would say that that's a struggle for almost anybody that's alive and human. Like we all want to help serve at some point and have a purpose. Um, you hear different things like, I need a mission. I lost my mission. Uh, I need a task. I need skills. I want to serve. And it really comes down to them identifying what they want to do, one. And then what gets them stuck, the stuck point is usually guilt and shame mm. of why they're here. Mm. And, and that's where you see these warriors just sink 
and say, well, I want to do this, but I'm not good enough. Here are the core beliefs. I'm defective. My body's not in shape like that anymore. I'm wounded. I'm not like I used to be. And so those are all shame statements, right? And so shame is responsibility again. They're feeling responsible. So many times they are stuck in careers that they haven't attained. And a big part of that, interestingly enough, being on the campus with other warriors, they find their tribe again. Mm. So here's the social impact that comes back in again. All of a sudden, they get encouragement from teammates. It's tribal. It's their, their ethics come back into play. They can relate. I call it comparison trauma in a good way. They start mm-hmm. comparing themselves. And so once they kind of find their family in a tribe, they start coming out of that um, mental health funk, right? Mm-hmm. There's a clinical term, right? Mm-hmm. That lowness. And they start saying, you know what? If that guy can do it, and he's got one leg, or that police officer can do it, and he's been in it for 30 years, well, I I can go back to school. I can go do this job that I wanted to. I can start a nonprofit and help veterans, Mm. and the lights come back on again. Mm -hmm. So that social structure, um, and our mission at Warrior's Heart is warriors healing warriors. They also heal each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we heal them as warriors, as clinicians, as medical, as um, intake staff and admissions, as culinary, but they also heal each other, warriors healing warriors. Yeah. And I I would imagine that part of that is telling their story. Mm -hmm. Um, How how does that play a role in, in their healing? Yeah, great question. So that's always a fun one to ask them. Are you ready to talk about it? And, and I will say, Stephanie, being a trauma therapist, if they are at this door, if they've come to the gate, they're ready. Um, our warrior class, typically, it's taken them years to get to this gate. They've been trying for a long time, and finally, things have fallen apart, or in their eyes, they need help. So for the most part, they're ready to tell their story. Now, are they scared? Absolutely. So one of the amazing projects that we do is something called a lifeline. Mm. So a lifeline um, has lots of connotations, medical and military. But the way we look at it is it's a chronological therapy assignment. Mm. So they're actually writing down from birth, age zero. How were you born, right? Were you late? Were you breached? Were you on time? Did you cry a lot, right? What did you know about your birth to warrior's heart? Wow. It is a very thorough lifeline. And what they're finding out when they do that, and they they take a couple of weeks to do this, right? We give them some time. But they start coming up with one, patterns, right? And two, they've got an automatic trauma timeline. They've got a grief, a grief timeline that emerges. And then they have something that we call moral injuries. Moral injuries are the invisible scars, or we like to say the woulda, coulda, shouldas. Mm-hmm. If I would have trained harder, I could have done this different. If I did, if I could have given up my seat, that person would have been there. Right. And so then we'll look at moral injuries of their stuck points. So that lifeline happens about halfway through treatment. And guess what? They stand up like they are the instructor 
and they actually brief the room and they have two hours of uninterrupted time with their peers to go from the very beginning to how they got there. It's incredible. It is. Those two hours are powerful. Yeah. To have that time of being able to tell your story and feel no judgment. I think that could change people's lives, no matter what, who you are, to feel like you could share from your heart who you are, what made you you, what the choices you've made, the things that have happened to you, and to just have people there who are truly present. Mm-hmm. I think um, that just that act alone must be very healing. I love that you brought up moral injury as well. Could you say that it's people using, it's that hindsight is 2020, but the thing is, is that we don't have that 2020 vision in that moment. Is, can you say a little bit more about moral injury for my audience? Definitely. So moral injury, we do a class and a group and we have assignments on it. And typically we'll say, who's ever heard of moral injury? And we may have one or two hands that go up. It's always less than 10% of the room. So why is that? Well, one, it's not a diagnosis, right? So you're not hearing a medical provider or clinician maybe use the term as much. However, our VAs are using it, right? And what we've identified in the history of it is it actually started out with medical professionals seeing um, veterans come into a hospital And they would get triaged, you know, they would be, their arms were taken care of, right? If that was the physical issue and they would leave the hospital and they still looked injured morally, right? Their values, their ethics, those are the invisible scars. That's the woulda, coulda, shouldas, the guilt and the shame. And so the way that we teach it here, once you say that, you'll see them kind of sit back in their chair and say, oh yeah, I have that. Of course, we've all made a bad call, right? We've all done something maybe we wished we shouldn't have, right? So morally, did it injure you? If it did and you're still holding on to that guilt and shame, then it's a stuck point, right? Mm -hmm. And our minds, even if we don't realize it subconsciously, we'll go back to that. And then guess what? We will lock in a core belief about ourselves. I'm in control, right? Which means I've got to always dominate a situation because I'm not in control. Yeah. So that's just Mm -hmm. an example. So the big difference between moral injury is it's a guilt and a shame, right? It's something that's happened that we take responsibility. (laughs) And it's really hard to diagnose. And sometimes people will say, well, that's PTSD. And it can be. They can be both or they can be separate. Mm-hmm. PTSD is typically an event where there was some fear, or if you were secondary to it, you saw something, you saw the saw the pictures, you heard the brief, you saw the look in your buddy's eyes, you still took on that trauma. You could still have PTSD. Moral injury is more of a shame based of something you did or you didn't do. So the term survivor's guilt comes up a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some of the work I've looked at on, on that shows the brain activates very differently with the 
what you would call the post-traumatic stress symptoms versus the moral injury. And there, it's like the post-traumatic stress has, there is a very strong physiological component to it as well, like sensory based of events that happen. And that moral injury is, yeah, from what I've looked at as well is this feeling of not having done enough or done something that was against what you morally hold to be true. So I, I can see how tying that where, where the power would be to change that would go to the core beliefs again. Yeah. Um, Cause it creates this structure in your mind of you, you, you're inadequate or evil even, or, you know, wrong or something like that. So again, those core beliefs sound like they come into play. You know, and uh, one that we hear a lot here, especially with um, military, if they were combat and deployed, is a lot of times they feel that they didn't do something. And that's interesting because then we'll say, what was your chain of command? What was the weapon that you had that day? What did you, what, what was the intel? What did you know about that scene? And so that's us going and looking on the ridgeline, a new perspective. And so then we'll normalize it. And I'll, I'll try to ask a lot of questions, rapid fire. Would you go against your chain of command? Well, no. Okay. Right. So what did you know at the time? Oh, well, you didn't know that. Remember, you found that out later, right? What was going to happen, right? So, uh, so we'll go back with them into that scene. And all of a sudden, they're using logic and reasoning and not the emotions anymore to try to say, well, yeah, that, that I was commanded to do that. Okay, well, who commanded you? right? You keep going up. Well, you know, the general, well, who commanded the general, right? And it sounds silly, right? But however, what you're trying to do is you're trying to take the responsibility and bust up the black and white thinking because they are stuck in that. that to me also takes this very deep systems thinking kind of approach, which I think that also, it ties into, you know, cognitive flexibility, explanatory flexibility of health. And this is for, cause I have a, a fairly wide audience. This is for people who've undergone trauma from childhood, adverse childhood experiences, things like that as well. When you take that, and when I say systems thinking, it's like exactly what you'd said in the beginning where it's not just you asked who else was there, I think is so powerful for us to think about because if we we feel like the spotlight is completely on us and it's just us and we're this isolated being that has that much power. And it's good for us to think we have a lot of power, <laughs> but we also have to recognize like we are a node and there's all these interconnected nodes and they're connected and they're connected and there's all these systems we're a part of. And the more we can expand our mind to like let the circuits light up to to see all of these things that are interconnected. I feel like now it's not this giant, giant weight that is our burden only because life is doesn't work that way. There's right. so many roots to every every node, every everything like that. And mm-hmm. we we really do, I think, make the best decision we can possibly make in a moment because if there was some way we knew there was a better decision that would have been made and I I think it's hard for people to grasp that I've I've had a lot of storytelling with older generations lately 
And we've kind of gone over some of that as well, where they had so much guilt over the years of the decisions they made. And now as they're getting a little bit older and we're having some of these more gentle kind of conversations, they're realizing there's no way I could, I, I couldn't, I did not have the ability. I didn't have the cognition. I didn't have the ability to see it in another way. So yes, that's what I decided because that was my belief at that time about myself too. And so I did react that way. I did treat that person that way, but it's because of the limited, whatever the limited belief was at that time. So um, it's just, I, I love how, how many layers and threads you guys cover. It's incredible. There, there's even more, like there's so much I want to talk about, but you know, we have a limited time today. The, the aspect of being at a ranch, having this, this outdoor, like not being in these four closed walls all the time. And I know you also have other things that you have them do. Can you say a little bit more about that too? Like we're getting the body involved. Like that's just to me so powerful too. We have to open up these four walls that most of us are contained in. We need to open up our senses, um, use our bodies in, in, in new ways. So how, how do you um, integrate that? Definitely. So, um, you know, experiential learning, right? It's a hands-on experience. Um, it has to be, you know, kinetic, right? Something that sometimes we can touch and, and feel in the action. So one of the beautiful things that we do is they're not only just seeing counselors or sitting in groups. That is a big part of it. But we actually have what we call electives. So electives isn't just, hey, we need to pass the time. It's no, how can you process what you're learning, what you're thinking Mm -hmm. about by action? Mm -hmm. And so Warrior's Heart is great because they have canines. They have a kennel. So sometimes people can say, you know what, I want to go train a dog. Or sometimes I'm telling you, it's like, I just need to go down and pet a dog and just sit there and touch. Right. Absolutely. We also have hands on. We have shops. So we've got a metal shop, a wood shop and an art shop. All of those are very physical. Right. They're doing something. And the the staff that are in there are highly trained to also kind of know therapeutically like, hey, you're drawing a picture of this or you're making a flag for somebody. Who is that person you're making a flag for? Right. And why? Right. Why are you drawing this picture? Why are you just out there just beating on a tomahawk, right? And Mm. making, right? How are you feeling today? Are you anxious, right? And so, you know, they can just go beat on some metal and make these amazing things out there, right? And of course, they're supervised. And so that we take them fishing, right? We have yoga classes. We do morning classes called Wake the Body, right? Mm. Where we do meditation with them, guided meditation, exercise, right? Affirming statements, visualize your day, right? So we're doing a ton of different things that's, it's different than just a classroom psychoeducation process. We're trying to do the experiential. And one thing I want to say is tying that in on the campus is many times our warriors have griefs, And we haven't talked too much about that yet. And a lot of times, yes, we will teach the class of the seven stages of grief, right? And that's the psychoeducation. What stage are you in? But where it becomes real is, okay, what do you want to do to honor this person? Mm. And they usually have so many buddies or family members, right, that have died or unfortunately committed suicide, right, have been lost. and. 
you know, the emotion is depression, sadness. Absolutely. Right. Core beliefs, they may have some guilt and shame and stuck, but we will actually do physical things. So we'll say, let's write a letter, cognitive processing therapy. Let's go. How do you feel about putting it in the ground and burying it? This is a holy ground. This is a safe place. Wouldn't you like to have warriors, you know, always around that letter, right? Mm -hmm. What do you feel about burning it and letting it go, right? How Mm -hmm. do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. So take action and do some things like that in grief. Um, Make a flag and let's leave it here. Let's hang it up on this wall right here. You pick, where do you want to hang it in this clinical building? Mm -hmm. Where do you put that picture in the chow hall for everybody to see? You know that you're honoring that person and, you know, I want you to know it's going to live there for others to, to be around it. Amazing. Yeah. I, I see this, this um, journey kind of on a, like a psychic emotional level uh, in terms of this grief of there, there's the, the body aspect of it, the, you know, the, the really internal distress and feelings. Um that you then allow to come into more of this cognitive verbal, and I call it like the sub-symbolic realm before there's any attachment to symbols. And then, then it enters that symbolic realm, but it's still in their mind. And then that the, the thing that I think is so important for humans to do, and you are doing this, is if it stays stuck just in our emotions and our mind and it doesn't physically manifest into something that you can see and touch and feel, it's like it stays stuck. It ruminates. And so I love that you allow it to pour out. And I, you know, a big part of my podcast this season is calling the biomechanics. Like how do we use, how do we take what's inside and use our hands and our voices and our bodies? How do we manifest it into something that we can, we can sense in our physical world. So that sounds exactly like what you're doing. That's beautiful. Do you have any nice stories about that? Well, but I will tell you real quick. So it sounds funny, but the clinical department does have a shovel mm-hmm. <laughs> and we will go bury things, right? And yeah. they get where to, to bury yeah. it. We yeah. also have a rock garden, right? So people will pick up a rock and there's the symbolism of mm-hmm. something. It doesn't yeah. actually have to be a death. Yeah. It can be something positive. And they'll take it to the art shop. They'll paint it. They'll put something on there and they'll leave it in the rock garden. They're going to have, so what's, you know, above, right? Our thinking is I'm leaving it in a safe place. I'm honoring somebody or I'm, I'm leaving something behind. It's, it's at warrior's heart. I don't need to worry about it. It's a burden, right? Or it's a, you know, it's some way to honor. Mm. And many times they'll do rocks. They'll find objects. We actually have um, some fossil seashells out here from our lake. Uh, we're in a bit of a drought. So the positive is all these fossil shells oh. come up again. Amazing. And so I have warriors all the time saying, hey, Kelly, can we go find seashells today? <laughs> I mean, you would have never heard that ever, but it's Beautiful. like, you're going to represent somebody in your life, yeah. right? So you find the shell and yeah. you know why it's either rough, it's smooth, it's big, it's little, right? It's, it's crooked. And then they take that and it's, it's that kinesthetic and that touch 
And it just, it helps to touch something and then to then figure out what feels good for them is either leaving it behind, bearing it, or they take it with them. And and it's like a self-soothe that helps them. Just one more point on that. And then I have one, one last question. Well, one or two (laughs) squeeze in. To me, what, what's happening there too, it's, it, you're changing the level of consciousness of that person and that memory because it's like when it's stored within us and we don't have, a, it's not external to us, it's still kind of like it's the subject. So it's still just a rumination. As soon as we create, we manifest something physically outside of our body and it becomes an object, we now can view it as an object. So now it's like it gives you relief a little bit, like it releases that from the person's internal environment. And so I I just think like there's such beautiful symbolism to that. And I think that also would happen in the stories, especially if they can be written down, like what you're doing. But these objects, what I love about the objects is that, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, like it doesn't have all the words because that can get a little caught up in detail. It's just this, this representation. And so it can change and, and evolve also as they go through their journey because there's no words on it. It's just this right. outside object. I love it. Two, two last questions. Uh, one is how family plays a role, how these, the, the members of the family, if, if there's like a strengths-based kind of approach to this as well, of how, how do they help on, on this journey? Yeah, great question. And you know that a lot of times people come in and their families have taken a hit, right? Because they've been struggling. So the families sometimes have the secondary trauma, the ripple effects, either of the substance use or just the trauma um, of how they've withdrawn, pulled away, right? Um, And so what we usually do is, you know, at the very beginning, uh, they have two clinicians. Every warrior has two counselors, a substance and a trauma, a dual. And we'll reach out to them, especially if they're wanting us to, and just say, okay, I want them to know that that they are involved. Are they supportive? Right. Let's get some history. But if you're okay with this, let us focus on you first, warrior, right? Because we could spend this whole time on the relationship. And never get back to root cause. Right. right? And a lot of times they're like, I, I've got to fix my marriage. And you're like, okay, just just hold, right? We got to take a knee and trust us. And let's let's get you through about halfway through treatment. Let's get through the lifeline, the core beliefs. Let's see what our targets are. And then let's pull your family in and do a session and tell them what's going to happen when you come home. Mm-hmm. So what we call that is they are writing a plan when they leave here. Some people say it's a discharge plan. Sometimes it's a recovery plan. We call it mission, my life. So their next mission is to live. It's their life, right? And it's about 30 pages of what they've learned. What are their core beliefs? Who are the five people that they're going to call if they're in trouble? Um, What are the griefs that they've worked on? What's their schedule going to look like? Who are the doctor's appointments, right? Financially, what are they going to do? And so we integrate the families mostly at the end to say, like, here's the plan. Here's how they've done. Now they're coming home or maybe they're not coming home. But for accountability, you're still in their life. Right. And this this is their next step of how to live because we're trying to help them. First and foremost, we're trying to save their life. We're trying to help them see that their mission is to live. Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. It's not necessarily right then to fix the marriage. If we can help them and bring them up to a level of wanting to live, then the referral is they go get a marriage counselor afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And getting to those, the, the core beliefs, because without, without getting to that, it's just repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's not conscious. There's, there's no other strategy available to them. So I love that. And finally, just to close up, is there anything that you think people misunderstand about warriors or trauma, post-traumatic stress? Is there anything that you feel like is misunderstood or a myth or something like that? Feel like you could give insight to? Yeah, that is a great question. Working with this class for so many years, they are complicated. <laughs> and I don't think people realize if they if they have never served or they're not really in the military community or law enforcement, they don't realize that they have layers and complexities of traumas. Um, our law enforcement, they go back shift after shift, night after night for years, right? Our military, it's deployments and then they get rest and then deploy again, right? And so what is misunderstood is the complexity, one, of what are the targets? What are the issues? Sometimes they're like, Kelly, I have so much. I don't even know where to start. The other thing is a lot of times these men and women came from broken childhood. And they were in a place where they were not in control. They were abused or they saw abuse right? They had fear. And what have they done? They flipped it. They yeah. have become our protectors, our angels, wow. our saviors. They have stood the line to say, nobody is ever going to get hurt on my shift. Nobody's wow. ever going to get hit again, or I'm going to take care of people because I wasn't taken care of. And so the thing that we see a lot is it really goes back deep before 18 years old for the majority of them. Because they, in such tumultuous times, it's made them amazingly who they are today. Yeah. Although it was survival in the past, right? We have to then figure out, is it maladaptive? Is it bad behaviors now? Yeah. So that's what we're looking at, is a lot of times they don't realize they are not this perfect person. They actually came from quite a bit of adversity early on. Mm -hmm. And it's complex, very complex. Wow. Just hearing that, I mean, I, that sense of inadequacy and helplessness that may have been there before where they, but then there's this beautiful transformation where they, they want to be the helper. They want to make sure everyone's okay and not hurt. And then that's also where I can see how much of that grief and that pain comes because they feel like they can't do it now. So what a huge contrast. For them and what a beautiful journey that you guys can help them to get back in touch with that feeling again so because it's it's so strong in their heart I imagine yeah amazing well yeah. thank you so much I know you have to get going how can people learn more or any any last thoughts that we didn't cover and how do they get in touch or learn more well at warrior's heart if they know somebody that was in that warrior class veteran active duty police, fire, EMT, they can definitely go look at the website. It's warriorsheart.com. And our mission is to bring them home. We want to bring them home. And really that mission is to help them live. And so um, 
24-7, someone will pick up the phone and answer to help. Even if you don't, if you're not part of the family and just have a referral and say, hey, I have a buddy who our admission staff is amazing and they will track down and, and help you if you don't know what to do next. Awesome. Thank you. Such an honor to have you uh, on the show. Thank you so much. And I will list all of that stuff on, on my website as well. You can find out more about Warrior's Heart at warriorsheart.com. And I hope you were able to get some insights or ideas for yourself or for your loved ones about multiple ways that we can increase our perceived ability to cope with life's challenges. And as we mentioned in the interview, a very big part of that is connecting with others, as well as finding ways to share our stories, hear others' stories, creating safe space for that. And also understanding how our core beliefs about ourselves, how that affects our responses to events and people. And it can be very helpful for us to, to understand those mechanisms of how beliefs get shaped and formed, as well as how we can update them by exposing ourselves to new experiences, whether that's through things like therapy or retreats or learning from people who have gone through a lot of challenges and have figured out how to update those core beliefs to get them to a place that really helps them respond to life events in ways that they really want to. As I mentioned earlier as well, I'm going to be continuing with my wilderness first responder training. The second half will happen in March. And for me, it's part of doing some things that increase my perceived ability to cope. So challenging myself with new learning environments and learning new skills. And it's also part of a vision I've had for a very long time of trying to increase my time outdoors and to have a lifestyle that is less always contained within four walls in front of computers, which it, it is for now, for the short term, just as I build towards this idea and these visions. And it's something that I think is has been very, very empowering to me to not only learn new skills, but to see my own approach to problem solving. How do I react to events that are stressful? How does my decision making get affected by my own emotions and physiological responses, as well as the group dynamics that occur and people who may be dysregulated? So I encourage you to find experiences like that, that challenge you on that social, emotional, physical level. I really encourage outdoor time if possible, but at the very least, moving your body in new ways, moving your hands in new ways, learning different things that can really increase that perceived ability to cope. That is such a powerful mechanism within us in terms of influencing our responses and our decision makings about our future as well. When we have that higher level of feeling like we can cope with things, our choices become bolder our dreams become bigger. We are able to expand our territory of what we could explore and, and navigate. So the more different and variety of experiences we can have, 
and particularly in with that psychological safety of other humans. That piece is incredibly important as well along the way. If we can do that, we may get better at aligning our decision-making and how we are choosing to create our futures in ways that really line up with our highest potential instead of a less capable version of us. I encourage you to find any kinds of organizations that push you in those ways. There are so many out there at this point that can help you find people who are also really excited and willing to learn. That's the other really cool aspect of going to do these kinds of learning experiences is you are meeting people who really want to also learn. They are open to doing something they've never done before. They're open to being a bit of a beginner again, which creates a really beautiful space of connection for people. And I think that sense of learning and opening of our minds to new skills, new capabilities, and connecting with others at the same time is a really powerful way for us to become more resilient. So I encourage you to try any of that stuff out. And you can find out more about all these kinds of things and my recommendations on my articles that are on my blog on my website, stephaniefay.com. And make sure to subscribe because I compile a lot of those articles into newsletters each month and send those out. So thanks for joining me and I'll catch you in the next episode.